This evening we're going to look at the second chapter of Zephaniah, verses 8 to 10. And as we look at those three verses, begin with a question about the literary style or the structural symmetry. So as has been our practice, let's take a look and see if, if there's vocabulary there which establishes a pattern or a concatenation which needs to a, shall we say, frame-like structure. So I'll give you a minute or two to glance over the verses and then to suggest what will make your reputation or break your reputation. Verses 8 to 10. Now, when I mark out these sections, what's the first thing you ought to do? Expect that it's a complete section. Okay. And so you're looking for a pattern at the what and at the what? Beginning and end. Okay, and what do you see? Kay saw it earlier today. Go ahead, Kay. Taunting or taunting. Taunting is one of the uh, words that is repeated. It's repeated twice in verse 8, you'll notice. But it's repeated at the beginning and end of this unit in verse 8, the first line and in verse 10, actually the second line in the Hebrew text. <clears throat> but there's a little bracket or frame around the word taunt or taunting. All right, any other word as you uh, scan it that may in fact, or series of words that may in fact bracket or frame the beginning and the end? Arrogance. Arrogant plus the preposition against. against. Yes, it's a uh, immediate duplicate sequence in the Hebrew. It's been quite faithfully translated by the New American Standard. Arrogant against and arrogant against in verse 8 and arrogant against in verse 10. So reinforcing the fact that we've noted the beginning and ending of this unit, we have actually two words, two uh, series of words in uh, verse 8 and verse 10 which duplicate one another. Now the third uh, thing to scan for is something that may be more frequent than the beginning and the end. is actually a concatenation pattern. When I say concatenation, what do I mean? Come on, all you crocheters. Got the word that repeats itself one line to the next and another word that connects the next. Yes, it's just like hooks it together, like you hook 
your uh, skein, your, your, your knits together as you were knitting or crocheting. So what do you see that concatenates? It's like a chain link fence. See my people. My people in verse 8. My people in verse 9. What do you see in verse 10? The people of the Lord. People of the Lord. Is it the same people? Oh, yes. yes, it is. Okay. So the word people is concatenated. It's concatenated possessively in each case. The people of mine, the people of mine, and the people of the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> All right, so we have a justification then for looking at this three-verse section of chapter 2 as a unit. It's a rhetorical or literary unit. Now, there are those that extend this unit beyond verse 10 to verse 11. I'm rejecting that. Now, explain to me why I'm rejecting that. I'm rejecting that Verses 8 and 10 are a literary or a, uh, an, a, a, a rhetorical unit of integrity. And I'm rejecting those commentators and scholars who say verse 11 is a part of that unit. In other words, that the unit ought to be 8 through 11, not 8 through 10. Why am I rejecting that? Mark? Could it be because of the coast mass that refers back to what we talked last week? Uh, that's a very good observation. Uh, there's something to be said to that, but it's easier than, than that. I'm not suggesting that that's completely out of place, but it's e- the answer to my rejection is easier than that. What did I just have you do? Pardon? So you don't find in verse 11 what? You don't have the same vocabulary. You don't have any vocabulary in verse 11 that is the same in verses 8, 9, and 10, do you? There are no repeated words. So the tone has changed. The vocabulary has changed. And next time I'll make my case for why that is true. But for our purposes this evening, we see that 8 to 10 has this sequence of duplicate symmetrical vocabulary. It even has a repetitive chain-link concatenated vocabulary. None of that vocabulary occurs in verse 11, and so we will stop where the symmetry and parallelism stops for the rhetorical or literary unit. This is true in your New American Standard translation, because once again, New American Standard is the most faithful translation of the original Hebrew text. If you look at the Hebrew text, you will see these words jump right out at you, and you will not find any of those words in verse 11. Any questions? All right, we've established then. Yes, go ahead, Kate. The fact that verse 11 talks about the same people, Moab and Ammon, that doesn't add it to it then somehow? Um, Once again, uh, once again, that's a very good observation. Uh, be patient, and uh, next week I will I will try to explain what I think is going on in that 11th verse, when in fact he's not primarily talking about Moab and Adam. He's not primarily talking about the coastlands or the seacoast, as Marge pointed out. 
He's doing something else. Okay? And I'll, I'll try to make that clear next time. All right. Now, we do have in this section a geographical shift as compared to verses 5 and 7. I'm going to go back to Marge when she brought up the coastlands. Verses 5 to 7 are talking about what geographical area? Marge? Philistia. And what direction would that be if you were going from Judah? Is your name Marge? Oh. I, I, I didn't know you were addressing Marge, but... I'm, I'm, still, I'm still talking to my friend Marge, and I want to talk to my friend Randy. I'll move over and look you right in the eye. Okay. <laughs> Marge, go ahead. Yes, it's west towards the Mediterranean Sea. So, Randy, what's the shift here? In verse 9. Uh, it says right there on the paper, it's geographical. Yes, it is. What, and, and what geographical shift? Marge has told us that in verses 5 to 7, we have the geography of the west coast of Judah, or the west coast of Palestine, the Mediterranean border. What do we have in verse 9? Well, when you look at the map, so I know where Moab That's is. That's fine. By all means, the map is there for you to look at. It's more central, it appears, or maybe even east. East is the direction that we're going, if we're going from Judah to Moab and Ammon. So, we've actually done a 180, haven't we? We've gone from west to east. We've gone from Cisjordan to Transjordan. Cis and Trans. Latin prepositions. Trans is easier, isn't it? What does the Latin preposition trans mean? How many Latin students do we have here? Is Abigail a Latin student? Not this year. Has Abigail in her Latin studied the preposition trans? She has not. All right. It means across. Well, <clears throat> Not when we talk about the Transjordan, although it does, in some sense, mean across the Jordan. <clears throat> it means on the farther side. Trans means on the farther side. So what does cis mean, C-I-S? The Cisjordan. Closer side. Closer side. Closer side. <clears throat> this side. On this side of the Jordan. So, Cisjordan. On the east side, I'm sorry, on the west side of the Jordan. Transjordan on the east side. That's the shift that has occurred here. It is a 180 degree opposite directional shift. Zephaniah moves his focus from the west coast to the east side of Judea. All right, now... On the map that you have in your handout, you can see Moab and Ammon on the east side of that dark, squiggly body uh, right to the left of Kir Moab. What is that dark, squiggly object just to the left of Kir Moab? It is the Dead Sea. And what do you know about the Dead Sea? 
besides it's dead. Location of Sodom and Gomorrah, or that's where they... <laughs> that is very good. Thank you, Cheryl. That is the possible location. Where about in the region of the Dead Sea is the possible location of Sodom and Gomorrah? Does anyone know? The, the, southernmost the southernmost part. Possibly the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah are buried underneath the Dead Sea at the southern end. <clears throat> Possibly. It's still a, a subject of intense archaeological debate and speculation. <clears throat> okay. The Dead Sea is dead because it has an extremely high salt content, because of the heat that evaporates <clears throat> the fresh water that flows into it. And it is the lowest point on the face of the earth below sea level. That is, at its depth, it is. It is some 3,000 feet below sea level at its deepest point. All right. So we notice then that Moab and Ammon are on the east side. Ammon on your map on the top, and Moab on the bottom. That's not how Zephaniah lists them, is it? In verse 8, he names Moab first and Ammon second. On the map, Ammon is on the top. Moab is underneath. Why does Zephaniah list Moab First and Ammon second. Bob? Well, that's on our map. I don't know what it was on his map. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same. It was the same. In the, on, on the biblical map, according to the geography of the book of Joshua and Judges, this, uh, these are the boundaries, <clears throat> the proper boundaries of, of uh, Ammon and Moab, respectively. Yes. <laughs> Moab is born first to whom? the first or oldest daughter of Lot and born through the incestuous union between that oldest daughter and her father. So that Moab is first because he's the oldest son, the oldest son of the oldest daughter. So in Genesis 19, verse 37, you'll see him listed, him and her listed first. What was her name, Marge? What was her name? What was Lot's oldest daughter's name? Ben, what was her name? You'll find it in a minute. Your son is going to help you out. Dan, what was her name? I don't know. Okay. That was a trick question. Yeah. She is unnamed. Now, why? Moab, her son, is named. She is not. Why? Because she's a woman? That's a little sexist. Well, that's the way it was. What's that? She did something shameful. Yes, she did, she did something that was shameful, and so she disappears from the narrative because of the shame of incest. I think that's the most reasonable explanation for why her uh, personal identity is not given, although 
the identity of her son is. All right, now, the uh, second child, or the younger son, is Ammon, and he's listed in Genesis 19.38. And what's his mother's name? The same. She is not named. Yes. Quite interesting in the Bible when someone is guilty of a particularly horrendous or notorious sin, they disappear. Their name disappears from the narrative. They disappear from the story, and so does their name. They are not remembered anymore. That's true of Orpah in the book of Ruth, a famous Moabitess by, incidentally. Uh, Orpah disappears after the first chapter. She's never named again. She plays no role in the rest of the story because she rejects the faith of her mother-in-law. She refuses to go with her sister-in-law. She is driven. She is dropped from the narrative. She has no continuing role in the narrative of the history of redemption. All right. Now, these are blood relatives of the Judeans, of the inhabitants of Judah in the time of Zephaniah. How is it they are blood relatives? Very good. They are related to Abraham as Judah is related to Abraham. In other words, they are all descendants of that family line. Okay. Now, why pick on Moab and Ammon in the case of these a kind of judgment motif. We can understand the Philistines. The Philistines were the inveterate foe and opponent. They were the thorn in Israel's side for centuries. So we can understand verses 5 to 7. But why Moab and Ammon? Because the Old Testament also contains a litany of stories of Moabite and Ammonite oppression and Moabite and Ammonite incursion. Now that word, go ahead, Randy. Moab and Ammon aren't part of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are not. No. They are descendants of Abraham by Lot. They are not descendants of Abraham by Isaac or Jacob. Okay, now, that word incursion is in the news virtually every day these days. What does that word incursion mean? The incursion into Fallujah, the incursion into Anbar province, the incursion into Kobani. What do we mean by that word incursion? Yes, to enter in, to actually run in. It comes from the Latin word curo, which means to run or to race race into, to incur. So an incursion is a hostile running into another country with the intent to raid, loot, murder, etc., etc. All right, so the Moabites and Ammonites were fond of oppressive incursions into Israel and Judah. One of the most famous uh, stories about the Moabite is the story of Balak, king of Moab, who seeks to do something to Israel as they come up out of Egypt. What does he seek to do to Israel? Uh, 
to curse them. And who does he hire to curse Israel as they come up out of Egypt? Balaam. All right, so here's a case in which the Moabites are calling down curses upon the children of Israel, but God won't allow those curses to stick. He turns those curses into blessing when Balaam opens his mouth. Now, there's another uh, interesting figure, Misha, who was the king of Moab in the 9th century B.C., who also has left behind an archaeological monument called the Moabite Stone. And on that Moabite Stone, this very same King Misha, who appears in 2 Kings chapter 3, describes how he rebelled against Omri. Now, who is Omri? Omri is a king of Israel, northern kingdom. Who is he the father of? He is the father of Ahab. And who is Ahab the husband of? Jezebel. Jezebel, yes. All right, so Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab particularly comes out of the line of Omri. So Omri had obviously subdued Moab and Misha, had rebelled against him, and he leaves a statement of the success of his victory in rebelling against the king of Israel on this Moabite stone, in which he glorifies the patron god of Moab and thanks that god for giving him the victory over the Israelites. And who would the god of the Moabites be? Mentioned numerous times in the Bible. No. Baal. Baal? No, not primarily, although they were polytheists, so Baal got in there once in a while. Chemosh. Chemosh. And how did you worship Chemosh? Child sacrifice. Pardon? Child sacrifice. Yes, in fact, in the Second Kings chapter 3 passage that is listed there on your handout, which refers to Elijah talking about, Elisha rather, talking about the rebellion of Moab against Israel. Not quite exactly the same rebellion, but nonetheless, Misha sacrifices his son in 2 Kings 3.27. All right, so child sacrifice or human sacrifice, most often it was children, was common in the ancient world on the basis of superstition that if you gave the most valuable thing you you had, namely your child, your progeny, if you offer that up to the God, then the God would give you a blessing. Lots of child, uh, lots of child burial grounds, lots of child bones in places like Carthage and Tyre on the coast of Phoenicia, because the Phoenicians were rampant infant sacrificers. It reminds you that there's nothing new under the sun, doesn't it? You do realize that, of course, that kind of paganism still is alive and well in the U.S. of A. And, in fact, the world in general. All right. Now, let's take a look at 2 Kings 24-2 because it's a short passage. But it carries on this uh, narrative of the opposition incursion, harassment, 
of the Moabites at various times in Old Testament history against the children of Israel, northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Judah, children of Judah, southern kingdom. Second Kings 24.2, when somebody has it, please read it out. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, bands of Aramaeans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken to his servants, the prophets. Okay, now who, which prophet is it likely that God had spoken this word that he would destroy Judah? Jeremiah, and who else? Who's a contemporary of Jeremiah? Zephaniah. <laughs> All right. Now, this passage is referring, if you notice, the first verse of Second Kings 24, to the era of King Jehoiakim. And in fact, in that first verse, it says that Nebuchadnezzar came up to Jehoiakim and uh, he served him for three years. Then Jehoiakim rebelled against him. And then God plagued him with these marauding bands, including the Moabites and Ammonites. So in that first verse of Second Kings 24, uh, uh, the three years for which Jehoiakim served Nebuchadnezzar. Who was he serving before he served Nebuchadnezzar? Egypt. What king? Nico, yes. And how did he get to serve Nico, king of Egypt? How, why was he serving the Egyptians before he served Nebuchadnezzar? Because Nico put him on the throne, didn't he? Yes. Jehoiakim was, in the beginning, 609 B.C., he was the puppet of Nico. Egypt was controlling Judah and Palestine at that time. But here is Nebuchadnezzar coming up. And Jehoiakim changes masters. Now, how would he change masters if he was still a vassal or liege of king of Egypt, Nico? Rebel? Rebel? Uh, he did rebel, but why would he rebel? No, I'm sorry, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar when he first came. He wasn't expecting Nebuchadnezzar to come. Because Nico had been beaten. He had been defeated. The second time Nico went up to Carchemish in 605. Nebuchadnezzar bested him in 609, chased him a little ways, but he didn't chase him all the way back to Egypt in 609. Then he put Jehoiakim on the throne. Jehoiakim's on the throne for four years. Then Nico goes back up to Carchemish in 605. This time, Nebuchadnezzar defeats him again, but he chases him. He chases him south, down through Palestine. And on his way down through Palestine, he stops at Jerusalem. And what does he do in Jerusalem? Demands service. March? He subjects Jehoiakim to his rule. This is when Jehoiakim becomes his puppet. Okay, But who does he take captive? 605. Abigail, who does he take captive 605? Daniel. Daniel. Very good. Very good. Anybody else besides Daniel? 
Their names? Yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That makes a great song. In fact, there's a vacation Bible school song about them. You ought to learn that one. <clears throat> I remember learning it when I was about six years old. Okay. Now, 605 B.C., the background to this verse, 2 Kings 24, verse 1. Jehoiakim is now the vassal subject of Nebuchadnezzar from 605 on. Three years later, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. So we're now down to 602, 601. Why would he rebel against Nebuchadnezzar? Tired of being controlled by him? Uh, possibly. Egyptians? Anything else? Egyptians? Yes, there's a change in Egyptian monarchy. So, since there's a change, maybe the Egyptians would be good buddy allies again, and we can stand up against Nebuchadnezzar together. Maybe one more time. All right, well, <clears throat> that's a, a long uh, discussion of the background of Second Kings 24.2. <clears throat> but in the meantime, the Lord harasses Judah with invasions by these other groups, including the Moabites and the Ammonites. All right, now, turning to Jeremiah <clears throat> chapter 48, we're going to characterize the Moabites as the prophet Jeremiah characterizes them. What is one of their outstanding characteristics according to Jeremiah 48? Let's particularly look at verse 29. Jeremiah 48, verse 29. And when somebody has it, go ahead and read it out. Does that sound like language that we've got in Zephaniah chapter 2? Indeed it does. Okay, so here is Jeremiah saying the same thing about the Moabites that Zephaniah is, or Zephaniah saying the same thing about the Moabites that Jeremiah is. They're characterized by pride and arrogance. All right, so we have a personality profile of the Moabites, the nation of Moab, which makes it all the more interesting that Ruth, the Moabitess, would join her life to the people of God and to the God of Israel. That's not a proud woman. That's a very humble woman. In fact, one of the most remarkable female characters in all of Scripture. More profound than you know. Okay. All right. Now, to the Ammonites. Any question about the Moabites? We've got a little Rorschach test on personality, psychological profile of Moabites. Okay? Not very pleasant people. They were also responsible for the, also responsible for, for the, the Baal Peor. That is true. Because who was responsible for Baal Peor? Who was putting the Israelites up to it? Oh, no, no, no. Somebody, somebody's encouraging this thing. Not just the women. Balaam. Balaam. Yeah, Balaam. Yeah, he couldn't curse them right? so he he anymore, so he's he going to curse them to the women. He's going he gonna to get them that way. And he dies in the offing. So, Balaam returns to the narrative. All right. How about the Ammonites? Once again, 
the Old Testament contains a litany of Ammonite oppression and incursion into Israel and Judah. And it begins with Jephthah. Now, Jephthah is a what? He's one of the what? He's one of the judges, okay? What do you know about Jephthah? What do you know about his birth? You know he was a bastard, right? Yeah. Because he was born to a... A harlot. A harlot, born to a prostitute. And what did that mean for his role in Israel? He wouldn't have had a role, or would not have been allowed a role. He would not have been allowed a role because what? Because he was a bastard. Yes, because they did what? He was born out of wedlock. Because they did what to him? They cast him out. He was an outcast. That's what the text says, Judges 11. Read the story. Anyway, <laughs> Jephthah, born of a harlot, a bastard, cast out by his brothers. So what does he do? He goes across the Jordan. He ventures Transjordan. Okay? And he recruits... Dan? He recruits a band of other outcasts, a guerrilla band of other outcasts, a band of what David would have called mighty men of war. Okay, So here's Jephthah with his own little private army because he's obviously a very powerful, very dynamic individual to attract that kind of following. And what are the Moabites or what are the Ammonites up to? They're oppressing the children of Israel. And the elders of Israel do what? They put their tails between their legs and they go and say to Jephthah, good old buddy Jephthah, we hated your guts once upon a time, but now we don't, we need you. We need you to save us. Please bring your army and take on these Ammonites. In other words, why was Jephthah cast out? Was it his fault that he was born of a harlot and a bastard? Was that his fault? Was he responsible for that? No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. So why do you cast him out for that? He gets a clean slate, so to speak. You treat him as a respectable human being, or at least you give him the chance to be treated as a respectable human being. You don't cast him out, but they did. And it comes back to bite him, doesn't it? Because who knows what would have Jep- what would Jephthah have done if he had grown up in Israel and the Ammonites had started coming and Jephthah would have led Israel against them without any incursion. But nonetheless, Jephthah does agree to come and help the children of Israel. And in that 11th chapter, which is quite a profound chapter of the Bible. In that 11th chapter, Jephthah goes through the whole history of Israel all the way from Abraham down to his own day. And in that history, he talks about how long the judges have been judging. It's a very important verse, chapter 11, verse 26. Why is it a very important verse? Because it has bearing upon the date of the Exodus and how long the judges were in their positions. And what does he say in that 26th verse, chapter 11 of Judges? 
He says that the judges have been judging 300 years. Well, here you've got these liberal archaeologists like William F. Albright and his followers, William Deaver, etc., who say that the Exodus happened 1200 B.C. Now, David is king in what year? Round figures. 1000 B.C. So if the Exodus is 1200 B.C., or even if the Exodus is 1250 B.C., okay, how long do we have between the Exodus and David? 250 years, but Jephthah says the judges have been judging 300 years. That doesn't compute, does it? Ah, the Bible's a mistake. The Bible's mistaken. The guy that wrote that 300 in the book of Judges didn't know what he was talking about. We're smart archaeologists. We know better than the writer of the Bible that was closer to the event than we are. And, of course, the other problem is 1 Kings 6.1 when we're told that it's 480 years after the Exodus when Solomon lays the foundation of the temple, which means we're back to 1446 B.C. for the date of the Exodus according to the Bible. And if we have a 1446 B.C. date of the Exodus, how long are they in the wilderness? 40 years. So from 1446 down 40 years, they're on the brink of going over the Jericho in what year? 1406. It takes them mm, five, seven, some say 16 years to conquer the promised land. So we're down to about 1390, 1395. Okay. Now, how many years do we have to David? 1390, 1395 down to David. 390, which gives us 300 plus, doesn't it? But we also got to remember that before David is... King Saul, how long does he reign? Forty years. And before Saul, we have Samuel, and he is a judge. He's the last judge for how many years? Maybe another 40. We're not really sure about that one. Okay, but nonetheless, you see that this date that Jephthah gives for the length of the rule of the judges fits the dates that the Bible provides. So who do you pick? You pick the inspired word of God or do you, inspect, you, you pick the non-inspired word of the archaeologists? Well, that's not hard for me to do, but, you know, you're up, you, I hope it's not hard for you either. Okay. All right. Now, the next thing that Jephthah does is something that also even conservative and liberals agree with. He says, after he reviews the history of God, uh, in uh, with his people in, in Israel. He says that if God will give him the victory over the Ammonites, he will give God the first thing that comes out to welcome him when he comes home as a burnt offering. And what's the first thing that comes out to welcome him as he comes home? His dog. So, of course, he practiced infant sac- or child sacrifice or, or, or human sacrifice. He actually killed his daughter and burned her up on an altar. You don't like that, do you? Neither is the writer of the Hebrews, does he? Now, let, let, Jephthah's name is in the in Hebrews 11, isn't it? He's one of those who, by faith, saw the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. He's one of those who's commended for saving faith. 
Now, if Jephthah is commended for saving faith, do you think that he's going to get a recommendation on that line, on that list in Hebrews 11? If, in fact, he drove a knife into his daughter's heart and burned her on an altar? I don't think so. I don't think so. So what did he do with her? Well, remember at the end of the story of Jephthah, his daughter goes on the mountains of Israel to bewail her virginity. What happens to Jephthah's daughter is that she's not offered as a burnt sacrifice. Her life is given as a living sacrifice to serve the Lord at the door gate of the, of the tabernacle. We know from 1 Samuel that indeed other women did in fact serve at the gate with the door of the tabernacle. And so it is likely that Jephthah's daughter was dedicated to that, which means that she died a virgin and there was no progeny, there was no seed to carry on the name of Jephthah or Jephthah's daughter. All right, um, that, I've, I've made my lengthier case for that in my series on Hebrews. So if you're interested in listening to my justification for that conclusion and not the conclusion that she is actually uh, murdered and uh, and burnt up on an altar. Uh, you can check that one out. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so the second thing about the Ammonites that we want to note is the siege of Urbah. Now, if you look at your map, you'll find Rabah or Rabath of Bene Ammon on the map of Ammon. As we mentioned last week, that is the same location today as Rabat, which is the capital of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan, is uh, in the region of ancient Ammon. So it is still a, a country. And Rabat, as Damascus, north of it, two of the oldest continuously occupied cities in the history of human civilization. All right, now what about this siege of Rabat? The siege of Rabat begins in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Who's that? Who, who's, whose story are we into in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1? Guess, anybody? Saul. Saul. No. Saul. No. In, David. David. Okay. And in 2 Samuel 11, 1, what's David doing? Is he going after the siege of Rabat? Art? Uh, yes. No, he's not. What's he doing? <laughs> Sharon, what's David doing? Instead of going out to the siege of Rabat, what's he doing? He's gazing over his balcony at a woman taking a bath. Her name's Bathsheba, not because she's taking a bath. And from that glance comes adultery. And from that adultery comes pregnancy. And from that pregnancy comes, i got to get rid of the evidence. Which means? He has her husband killed. Murder the husband. Particularly if he won't cover my adultery. All right, so. The siege of Rabah, which is about the Ammonites, drives or draws David into its narrative history in fact, it places a very dark cloud over the career of David. 
But David, at the end of that narrative, chapter 12, verses 26 to 31, goes to Rabbah and participates in the final victory against the city. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1, the narrator says, as it was their practice when kings went forth to war, David did not go forth to Rabbah. He was busy dallying with Bathsheba. At the end of his dallying with Bathsheba, which cost him the life of the child which is born of that adultery, and God's judgment upon his own household, remember, the sword shall not depart from you, and the sword did not. Absalom, Amnon, David was cursed with the sword of his own children. Okay, so, Amnites figure very large into the David narrative. And finally, as we noted earlier with Moab, the Ammonites are part of that band of incursive harassers that come down on Jehoiakim in 601 B.C., 2 Kings 24.2. Let's take a look at Ezekiel 25. Ezekiel 25 and characterized, now we want to do this psychological profile like we did on the Moabites. Let's take a look at what Ezekiel says is the basic characteristic of the Ammonites. Ezekiel 25, verse 2, verse 3 rather. And say to the sons of Ammon, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and against the house of Judah when they went into exile. Thank you. And what would be the date of those events when they uh, said, aha, against the sanctuary of the Lord, and Judah went into exile? 586 B.C. Okay, verse 6. Anybody read it out? For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel. Thank you. All right, now, New American Standard translates that word malice, scorn which gives us a little better flavor of the characteristic of the Ammonites. When they said, aha, up in verse 3, they were also scorning the children of Judah. So, uh, Ammon is characterized by contempt and scorn for the people of God. They gloat over their destruction. They gloat over their death and exile. They scorn them and stamp their feet when uh, Jerusalem and Judah fall upon evil times. All right, so back to Zephaniah 2. The prophet Zephaniah is bringing to bear upon these renegade and sinful and arrogant and contemptuous nations his own wrath and judgment. When? When did Zephaniah's prophecy become fulfilled? Five eighty six. Five eighty six? No. It's actually later than that. Five eighty six Nebuchadnezzar is concentrating on Jerusalem. 
not concentrating, concentrating on Moab and Ammon. Now, this story does not come from the Babylonian Chronicles. We have the archaeological record of the Babylonian Chronicles, which includes Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It was dug up in the 19th century, translated in the 20th century. You can read it uh, <coughs> in English. Uh, D.J. Wiseman, Donald J. Wiseman, was a translator, great evangelical archaeological scholar and historical scholar. He died about three years ago and uh, was a wonderful uh, defender of the historicity of the Bible. It was, it was his project to translate that Babylonian chronicle, which gives us a very tight, uh, date, datable uh, chronology for the history of Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, and Nebuchadnezzar himself. But, <clears throat> all right, at any rate, the Babylonian chronicle does not, uh, bring the date of this event, namely the destruction of Moab and Ammon by Nebuchadnezzar. It does not bring that event uh, into the text. How do we know this? From Josephus. From Josephus, the Jewish historian. <clears throat> Josephus tells the story of the defeat of the Moabites and Ammonites by Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar in about 582, 581. So after he had carried the children of Judah off to captivity. He thought he had pacified Palestine. He thought he'd pacified Judea once and for all. After all, it was the third time that he had invaded and besieged Jerusalem. The first time, as Abigail told us, was 605 when he carried off Daniel. The second time was what year? 598. 598. And who does he carry off in 598? That's his second siege. Ezekiel and... Not Daniel. Daniel's gone in 605. Jeremiah. Not Jeremiah. Jeremiah's never carried off to Babylon. He's carried down into Egypt. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim and his uh, queen mother. All right. So, five, uh, 605, first siege, Daniel and his friends. 598, second siege, Ezekiel and King Jehoiakim. Probably Jehoiakim, uh, who went out and surrendered, he probably did it to spare the city from complete destruction. Okay, third siege. But they rebelled in 605. They rebelled. They didn't rebel in 605. He just took the city. They rebelled in 598. They rebel in 586. Third time's a charm. Nebuchadnezzar says, that's it. Okay, three strikes and you're out. Well, you ought to be used to that. I mean, there's a very exciting playoff series going on right now, particularly if you're from Kansas City, right? Okay. All right. Actually, quite interesting Cinderella team, aren't they? Okay. All right. Now, um, 586 is the last straw. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks, third time's a charm, I've got this country under my thumb. They're not going to pull anything again. Well, Judah doesn't, but the Moabites and the Ammonites do. Because they collude with the Egyptians... And they try to throw off the tribute and rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, enough of this. I did the west side in 586, four years ago. Looks like I got to do the east side four years later, 582, 581. And so he conquers and destroys Moab and Ammon. So says Josephus. And most historians don't have any reason to disagree with it. All right. Um, we're past our break time. So we'll uh, pause here and take your refreshments, and when you come back, we'll deal with verse 9 and following.
Now we have arrived at verse 9 with a marvelous declaration, therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts. The declaration of the living God. Quite appropriate to the context of the Moabite and Ammonite gods, who are no gods at all, because they are lifeless idols. And no piece of wood, stone, metal, or any other thing has any life in it. Nor can it animate your soul by meditating upon it. It is lifeless and has no animate energy in it or in what it represents. Precisely the reason the living God says you do not bow down before stone, wood, metal images. You do not sit and adore them. I abhor them. I am a jealous God. I will not yield my worship, devotion, and meditation to any other because I alone am life and I give life. Those statues can't give you any life. Those idols can't give you any life. Those stone carvings can't give you any life. They can do nothing for you. I can do all that you need. A living God not a lifeless form of a person or a deity or an animal or any such nonsense. Zephaniah 2.9 An underscoring emphasis upon the divine aseity, the aseity of God. Right now, the aseity, the word aseity comes from a Latin prepositional phrase. Here we have Latin again. It's a very good thing to learn Latin. Helps you with your English vocabulary. Helps us with your theological vocabulary. Helps you, helps you with your microbiological vocabulary. Helps you right across the boards. Very good thing to learn a little bit of Latin. It also makes you an educated person. Can you imagine that being an educated person in the 21st century? All right. Now, prepositional phrase is ah say. Preposition is ah, pronoun is say. It's a particular kind of pronoun. It's not a relative pronoun. It is a reflexive pronoun. So what is the translation of ah, say, Professor Sanborn? Uh, from itself. From himself. From itself or himself, yeah. Reflexive pronoun means... It reflects, the pronoun reflects upon the self, himself, himself, herself, themself, etc. Okay, so the phrase ah say means from himself, God has life from himself. Or to say it positively, he is self-existent. So, next to Dan, down the line. When was God's birthday? 
When was God's birthday? Christmas. Christmas. That's the son of God's birthday. When is God himself, his being, his essence, when was God himself's birthday? Next to, ne- next to? Does God have a birthday? No. He does not have a birthday. Is God going to have a funeral? No. No, he's not going to have a funeral. God was not, once upon a time, not there, and then he was born. Because if he was not there, and he was born, then there's somebody before him, right? And there's no one before him. Why is there no one before him? Go ahead. Why is there no one before him? Because he is true. And what? how long has he been there? Forever. Say that in one word. Another word. Different word. Eat what? Eternity. Very good. Good for you. Somebody's doing the catechism. All right. The aseity of God. His self-existence. He has no birthday. He will have no funeral. He is eternal. He is without beginning and without end. He is a living, personal being. We are not worshiping a dead, impersonal object. Do you understand the difference between that? Do you get what it means to have a religion in which your focus is upon a living, personal being, not a dead, impersonal thing? It's all the difference between heaven and hell. It's all the difference between loving the Lord and obeying his commandment, which is, you shall not make unto you any graven image in order to bow down to it or serve it. You shall not do that. It's not just that he says it's not convenient. It's just, it's not just that he says it's not appropriate. He says, thou shalt not do it. And if Thou shalt do it. Thou shalt be shut out of my kingdom because I won't let anybody into my kingdom who's bowing down before images. I alone am God and there is no other. I alone am living God and there is no other. What are you prostituting your your devotion before a dead object? And you think? That you can bring that into my living room in heaven? You think that you can come into my presence and say, Yes, Lord, I worship stone, porcelain, metal images. You're not going to get through the gates. There are no idolaters in heaven. They are outside, weeping and gnashing their teeth. Well, that's not a very tolerant view, Denison. I'm not responsible for it. It's the teaching of the Bible. You've got hundreds of people, thousands of people. You have millions of people that don't agree with you, Denison. I'm sorry. The Bible doesn't agree with those million people. The Bible is very clear. Paul is very clear. 
There are no idolaters. There are no people that bow down before impersonal dead objects in heaven. Now, there may be repentant ones. There may be ones who formerly did that, even as Paul preached to many pagans who said, you have turned from idols to the living God. That is the same message that we offer to all those who bow down before statues and images in our day. Turn from idols to the living God for your own eternity's sake. Turn. Well, there is no salvation for impenitent idolaters. None. That's not my word. That's God's word on the subject. All right, so this phrase, living God, is extremely important to the message of Zephaniah. Because he's living, even in Jerusalem, he's living in a culture which is addicted to idols. And so, he places before them the name of not a dead God, but a living person. And then he adds to it. Another majestic name for the Lord. The Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth in Hebrew or Sabaoth in Greek. The hosts of the Lord. Who are the hosts of the Lord? They are the angelic armies. They are the legions that Jesus could have called for. They are the warriors who guard the throne of God and who sally forth to do his bidding. This is the image of the army of the Lord, the host of the angels who are at his command, and they are his warriors. All right, so we have the image of a living God. We have the image of a God who is a warrior with his military host, the angelic core, and finally, we have God of Israel. Look at that. In that verse, in two lines of that verse, three powerful descriptions of God. He's living God. He's the God of the armies of heaven and the God of Israel. Why that third one? Elohe Israel. Because he's the God of the covenant. Not all you Dutch Reformed people. That's the bedrock of your theology. And all I almost never thought there was anything else in your theology but covenant. I didn't think there was anything else in the Bible but covenant. Now, of course, I'm being a little facetious, but you, you do have to realize there are other things in the Bible besides covenant. You really do understand that, don't you? Okay, this, however, is the precious covenant name of God, the God of Israel. It's the name by which he binds himself to his people by way of promise. He binds himself to his people by way of grace. Now, if God binds himself to his people, 
if he covenantally enters into relationship to be their God and they will be his people? Does he do so because they have somehow merited that relationship? Have they earned it? Do they deserve it? Are they worthy of it? Are they capable? Do they have any potential to even merit it? Well, why don't they have any potential to even merit? Are they able? Do they have an ability? Or are they totally disabled? Doesn't Calvinism say we're totally unable? Why are we totally unable? Because we're dead in trespasses and sin. Well, then maybe he makes me alive and then I can earn it. Then I can deserve it. Then I can be worthy of it. If he gives me a little shot of, uh, you know, some kind of divine juice, okay, and then, then I can go on with that little shot and I can, I can perform congruent merits. Congruent merits. That means merits which are congruent with the work and deserve a reward. Could you ever obligate God to reward you? Paul says in Romans 11.35, quoting the book of Job, impossible. Who could ever say that I have made God my debtor? Or, as the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 4.7, what do you have that you have not received? Does that sound like merit? Does that sound like you got something because you received something, you were merited and you earned it? No. Apostle is talking about the gift of God, something you received as a gracious gift. So this covenant name of God is anchored in his gracious disposition, his gracious promise, his gracious faithfulness to be the God of his people, and they will be his people. That is fundamentally, that is basically, that is essentially a grace paradigm. It is not a merit paradigm. It is a faith paradigm. It is not a works paradigm. It couldn't be any other for sinners. Any sinners. Me sinner, you sinner, world sinners, today, yesterday, when Jesus died on the cross, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, when Israel was at Mount Sinai, when Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, when Adam sinned, sinners don't get anything by merits. Because sinners are totally unable. That's what the first of the five points of Calvinism is, right? I think, I think that's what that doctrine says, right? Because you're not only totally depraved, you're totally unable. You've been totally disabled, which means that God is totally able and Christ is totally sufficient. And you lean upon him. You lean upon the Father through the Son by the Spirit. You lean upon the triune God for your salvation, not for your merits. All right, so this covenant name of God is, by definition, gracious after sin comes into the picture. 
All right, now, in that ninth verse, he talks about like Sodom or as Sodom, like Gomorrah or as Gomorrah. What kind of language is he using here? Mr. Sanborn, what kind of language is he using here? A simile. I'm not really sure it's a simile, but because he says like or as, that's the usual definition of a simile. Now, if it's not a simile, what's the opposite of a simile? Professor Sanborn? A metaphor. Or as one wag or wit quipped, a metaphor is a simile without the like or as. A metaphor is a simile without the like or as. All right, now, why am I questioning whether this is a simile? I'm not really sure that that's the force of the Hebrew key here, and one of the reasons is he's simply making an assignment of identification. He's not saying it's like this in terms of an analogy. He's saying it's like Sodom and like Gomorrah because that's what they became. What did Sodom and Gomorrah become? And that's the uh, answer after the question mark on the blank line. They became totally destroyed. God burned them up when he rained fire and brimstone down, down out of heaven upon them. All right, now going on in this verse... <clears throat> He describes the region of Sodom and Gomorrah as a place possessed by nettles and salt pits. Now, I have one gardener here that I know about. What are nettles? Okay, you want to tell us about nettles? Nettles are weeds that are prickly. Why? Very good. Prickly weeds. Why? Why do they prickle? They sting. Yes, why do they sting? Sure. And they actually, they're actually little hypodermic needles. <laughs> yeah, the little tentacles of the nettle, nettle, if you get near them, the little flimsy parts of them, if you get near them, they'll actually inject histamine into you. And that's the reason that you start scratching or itching or you can become irritated. All right, now... The stinging hair of the nettle is uh, an indication of a kind of irritation or curse motif. But let's turn back to the book of Proverbs and very quickly look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 31. Proverbs 24, 31. He's talking about a vineyard here. Solomon is talking about a vineyard. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Now, as you look at those two lines, what is it possible to say about the relationship between thistles and nettles? They are similar. In fact, they may be identical. Because remember... Hebrew poetry and the Proverbs are poetic. Hebrew poetry is parallel. It is symmetrical. So 
So the one line, which uses the word thistles, is further elaborated or explained by the second line, which uses the word nettles. It's a typical Semitic parallel expansion. Scott? once more for the second line. So it yeah, it, 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 it's, it's once more in terms of the fact that he's emphasizing the kind of brambly part of Nestle. Uh, the the thistly, not so much the uh, kind of stinging and irritating. So in other words, it's possible that here these two words are synonyms. And they're just elaborating upon a, a, a dimension of a... Of plant that indicates a curse. All right. Now, the mention back to Zephaniah 2, the mention of the salt pits. What did that bring to mind? Sodom and Gomorrah and salt pits. Lot's wife, exactly. Okay? Dead Sea itself, which is heavy in salt deposits and lots of salt deposits around the edges of the Dead Sea. Deuteronomy 29, 23 talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of barren, sterile, dead, lifeless terrain. And that is certainly true of anybody that visits that region and any of the bordering perimeter around the Dead Sea, except for the kibbutzim, the kibbutzes, which have been started there by enterprising Jewish colonists. I don't think it's wrong to call them colonists because they actually are colonizing the desert. <clears throat> All right. Now, as we look at this unit, we notice language which expresses reversal. That is, the turning about of a particular pattern in the first case in terms of judgment, in the second case in the reverse of the judgment <clears throat> to a kind of positive uh, declaration. So, we begin with the language which we found in verses 8 and 10, the taunters. God is going to do something to the taunters. What is he going to do to them? He's going to silence them. Their taunting is going to be made mute. Because he's going to destroy them. The Ammonite and Moabite taunters are going to be silenced by the Almighty God. Well, what happens to the taunted? In other words, what happens to those that have been taunted by the taunters? We're going to be, we, need a, we need a word that is analogous to silent or is the opposite of silent. And here's your, here's your scrabble word for the week. The, the taunted... The taunted are going to be bruted. Bruted. B-R-U-I-T-E-D. Bruted. <laughs> I'm glad you're only half step behind me, Dad. All right, now how many of you ever heard the word bruted? B-R-U-I-T, not B-R-U-T-E. Not that stinky deodorant. Garge? Marge, you heard it? Can you define it? Okay, very good. All right. It's to, it's to sound forth, okay? To brute, as a verb, B-R-U-I-T, is to sound forth. 
And here, we're going to place it in a kind of, as Dan was suggesting, a kind of exaltation, a proclamation, a heralding of joyful noise. Okay. Notice the reverse paradigm. Because on the one hand, if the taunters are going to be judged and God's going to silence them, on the other hand, those who have been taunted are going to have their tongues loosed. Okay? And they're going to employ them in sounding forth, in brooting forth. Praise God. Okay, revilers. God's going to judge the revilers. How's he going to do that? He's going to dishonor them. He's going to dishonor the revilers. Well, those that are reviled, what's he going to do with them? Opposite of dishonor? He's going to honor them. They're going to become honored in his sight. The proud are going to be reversed in judgment to being humiliated. And the victims of pride are going to be reversed, exalted. exalted. Very good. The arrogant are going to be reversed in judgment. They're going to be disdained. The victims of arrogance are going to be reversed. They're going to be... Esteemed. Esteemed. All right, now. The land of the Lord's oppressors, Moab and Ammon, is going to be reversed by this section, Zephaniah 2, 8 to 10, to become the land of the Lord's possessors. The reverse paradigm. The land of perpetual desolation is going to become a land of perpetual inheritance. Notice that very word is used in the end of verse 9 in our text. The land that is in focus here is the territory, word used here in verse 8, the inheritance land, verse 9. The land that is in view here is the territory, the inheritance land of the people of God. It is the inheritance land of the people of God, which is at once the land of the living God. This land is that land. Their land is his land. It is the land of the Lord of hosts. It is the glory land of the God of Israel, the God of the eschatological Israel, God of the covenant of the eschatological covenant of the eschatological Israel of God. Land here is exegetical of that which transcends land. Land here is exegetical of that which transcends land as cosmos is transcended by eschatos. As from the west to the east, from the coastlands to the barren salt pits, from Crete to Philistia to Israel, Judah to Moab and Ammon, are transcended. 
as far as it is from the west to the east, from the east to the west. So far does this land transcend those lands. Its length and breadth and height and depth, that land's breadth, depth, height, length, transcends these lands as eternity transcends time. For this land that God grants to his people by prophetic gift through the words of Zephaniah, this land is the land everlasting. The land of life. The land of no more death. The land of no more taunting. The land of no more revilings. The land of no more pride or arrogance. The land of no more desolation. Rather, a sweet paradise land flowing with heavenly milk and honey. A land of no more oppression. Rather, a land in which the love of God in Christ Jesus is possessed to the brimful. A land in which the grace of God in Christ Jesus is possessed up to the brimful. A land in which the inheritance which is in Christ Jesus is secure, protected. That inheritance is assured because the Lord God Sebaoth is with us forever and ever and ever and he will secure our borders against those enemies and they will not cut off our heads. The terrestrial of Zephaniah is reversed by the eschatological. It is never about the promised land of Canaan Ultimately, it is always about the land of heaven. Ultimately, it is never about the Davidic monarchy. Ultimately, it is always about the kingdom of God. Ultimately, it is never about the temple of Jerusalem. Ultimately, it is always about the holy habitation of the Lord, his everlasting sanctuary. Ultimately, it is never about the earth, the created cosmos. Ultimately, it is always about the uncreated eschatos, ultimately. Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, bears the taunts for his people on that cross. Lord Jesus Christ ultimately bears the revilings for his people on that cross. The Lord Jesus Christ bears the humiliation for his people ultimately 
on that tree. The Lord Jesus Christ bears the arrogant disdain for his people, the apple of his eye. He bears the arrogant disdain for them, ultimately, on that gibbet. The Lord Jesus Christ bears the ultimate reversal, the eschatological reversal, so that from his death may come resurrection life. From his dispossession may come the possession of the right hand of glory. From his humiliation may come the ascension, exaltation to the heavenly city of the Israel of God of the end of the age. Zephaniah 2, 8 to 10 drives us to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the heavenly kingdom where he dwells now and forevermore. His territory, his territory, our territory in him, his inheritance, our inheritance in him. Zephaniah drives us to Jesus, for he is the living son of the living God. He is the champion of the armies of heaven, and he is the covenant seal of the eschatological Israel. That's the God and Savior to whom you've been invited to belong, whose inheritance is already open to you, eternal in the heavens. Love it. Embrace it. Believe it. Live it. Shall we pray? Give us strength, O Lord, to live out of your life and faith in sweet union with the saving grace of your dear Son, our Savior. We may indeed strongly testify in our dark and depraved generation to life and not death, to an inheritance undefiled, not corrupted by scandal and sin and depravity, and to a covenant relation which is sweeter than even the relation between a man and his wife. Bless us, O Lord, in such wondrous grace and love We may indeed stand for what Zephaniah prophesied, what Jesus, who came to do what Zephaniah prophesied, and what the host of angels sing and hymn even now and shall forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.